welcome again to Ophthocast, the audio podcast channel dedicated to ophthalmology. We are a team at Ophthocast who strive to provide you audio talks on ophthalmology, which are more practical and easily understandable, targeted at students and residents alike. Today we talk about the pupil. The topic in itself is so vast that we are compelled to divide this topic into two parts. Pupil is a wonderful part of our eye. It forms what we call the non-perceptive vision. That is even if we don't cortically perceive the light, the pupil will. Pupil gives us a lot of insight into various pathologies of the complete visual system. Let's start with the anatomy. What we know as the pupil is an opening in the iris to let the light into the globe. Thus, the lens refracts the light and projects it onto the retina. With regard to the coats of the eye, the iris falls into the coat that we call as uvea. In the embryonic stage, the iris covers the entire anterior surface of the lens. There exists an apoptotic process which creates the pupillary aperture. The iris is of both ectodermal and mesodermal in origin. The layers of the iris harbors the sphincter and dilator muscles of the iris, which in turn controls the pupillary aperture. Here, we would talk majorly about the pupil and not much about the iris. Pupil characteristically has three different functions. Firstly, the pupil controls the amount of light entering the globe onto the retina. They are our first line of tools for dark and light adaptation. The pupil can reduce the amount of light by 1.5 log units within 0.5 seconds. Hence, forms the important and immediate means of light adaptation. This is very evident in people with dilated pupil. They do not have the retinal light and dark adaptation, but it is not fast enough to avoid the symptoms of glare and photophobia. Secondly, the pupil reduces the spherical and chromatic aberrations. As we know, the human crystalline lens and cornea has different optical properties in their peripheral regions. The periphery is more aberogenic in terms of both spherical and chromatic aberrations. This is prevented by the pupil since the pupil by means of the tonic state brings the aperture to the central part forcing us to use the central cornea and central lens for our vision. This improves the overall quality of the retinal image. Thirdly, the pupil is very useful in near vision. If you recollect from the previous episode on accommodation, we spoke about depth of focus. A small pupil gives us a better depth of focus, enabling us to move the book that we are reading without perceivable change in the focus. In some instances, a pinpoint pupil nullifies any refractive error as well by pinhole effect. These were the physiological contributions of the pupil to vision. Now a brief about the anatomy. 
The iris is what forms the pupil. The iris has two distinct layers to say, the anterior and posterior. The muscles of the iris, sphincter and dilator are located on the posterior surface. The sphincter is arranged circumferentially in the pupillary margin and dilator in the mid-iris. The dilator is a weaker muscle compared to the sphincter. That means the sphincter overrules the dilator in cases of conflict. Now let's see the mechanism and pathway that defines the pupillary response. The iris is innervated from three sources. Firstly, the sensory innervation by the ophthalmic division of trigeminal. This nerve reaches the iris by the long ciliary nerves and carry the sensations of the iris. The problem of irritated iris after copious handling is mediated by afferents of these nerves. This phenomenon is very well appreciated by cataract surgeons. Intraoperative meiosis after iris handling is very well known. It is said that the use of intracameral anesthetic like lignocaine prevents this effects by numbing these afferents of trigeminal nerves. It is a common practice at various centers to use intracameral lignocaine in cataract surgeries, especially the ones done in topical anesthesia. The second innovation is of the parasympathetic system. This is the major innovation that we need to be aware about. The fibers of parasympathetic system destined for the pupil originate at Edinger-Westphal nucleus in the midbrain. These efferents travel along the oculomotor nerve, synapse at the ciliary ganglion and then reach the iris musculature, primarily the sphincter pupillae. The third innovation is of the sympathetic system. The sympathetic efferents travel along the spinal cord down till the C7 to T2 vertebrae and exit with the spinal nerves. The sympathetic fibers then synapse in the stellate ganglion. So till then, it's preganglionic. The emerging fibers from the stellate ganglion go and buddy with the carotids and along the carotids enter the cranium. As the carotids traverse the cranium, these fibers take a ride to the eye on the ophthalmic artery, subsequently reaching the dilator pupillae. As elucidated earlier, the pupil has three distinct functions. These functions are fulfilled by three different reflex pathways and structural parameters. Although overlapping at various levels, these pathways have their own different characteristics. Now let's look at the pupillary light reflect first. When we shine the light into the eye, the pupil constricts. That means there is a constriction of sphincter muscle. There exists no role of dilator muscle in this reflex since the sphincter muscle is much more powerful than the dilator. The reflex starts with the detection of light. Recent advances in the retinal cells tell us about an inherently light-sensitive ganglion cells termed inherently photosensitive retinal ganglion cells or 
IPRGCs. These ganglion cells contain the primitive light-sensitive pigment called melanopsin. They are distributed all around the retina, more concentrated along the maculopapillar bundle. These cells are the ones that detect light and form the afferents of the pupillary reflex. You should also know that these cells also aid in the regulation of circadian rhythm. Now let's follow the axons of the IPRGCs. So these IPRGCs send in their axons along with other ganglion cells into the optic nerve. These small group of axonal fibers divide into the nasal and temporal fibers out of which the nasal fibers cross to the other side of the optic chiasm. This crossover distributes the pupillary afferents into equal parts in weightage for either side. That means the pupillary changes in this pathway will be unequal on both sides if the damage is before reaching in a lesion anterior or distal to the chiasm. So these fibers after crossing over travel with the optic tract. The optic tract travel till the lateral geniculate body but these pupillary afferent fibers take a detour in the outskirts. Then they lead themselves onto the posterior or ventral midbrain to reach what is called as the pretectal olivary nucleus. This nucleus is situated posteriorly, that is, behind the central aqueduct. Shaped like an olive, hence it is called the olivary nucleus. The location of this nuclei makes it susceptible in cases of a posterior circulation stroke. Till here, we had the second-order neurons of pupillary afferent pathway. The first order being the bipolars and second being the axons of IPRGCs. These second-order neurons synapse at the olivary nucleus. There arises the third-order neurons for this afferent pathway. All of us have two olivary nucleus, one on each side. However, it doesn't keep to itself what comes to it, it will share. The third-order neurons from these nuclei traverse anteriorly, crossing the aqueduct to synapse into the Edinger westphal nucleus. The interesting fact here is that each Edinger westphal nucleus receives third-order neurons from both the olivary nuclei. So half of these neurons actually cross over to the other side. From the Edinger westphal nucleus emerge the efferents of this pathway, which are parasympathetic fibers to the sphincter pupillae. The right Edinger westphal nucleus supplies the right eye and the left to the left. These efferent fibers traverse along the third cranial nerve and supply the ispilateral sphincter pupillae muscle through the short ciliary nerves. On studying various species, it is seen that the crossing of the third order neurons or the interneurons directly reflect the amount of binocularity in the field of vision. In animals with eyes on either side with very less stereoscopic vision, this kind of bilateral representation is not seen. So, let's have a run through the pupillary reflex pathway at this stage. 
eyes shine a torch in your right eye. The IPRGCs of your right eye is stimulated. The nasal fibers cross to the other side. Temporal fibers on the same side. These fibers reach the olivary nucleus of both sides. The right olivary nucleus receives the fiber from the temporal IPRGCs and the left will receive the fibers from nasal IPRGCs. The olivary nuclei relate to Edinger-Westphal of both sides. The right Edinger-Westphal will mediate the direct light reflex and the left one, the consensual part of it. Hence, both sphincter pupillae contract, that is, the pupil of both eyes contract. Right eye by direct and left eye by consensual. What happens to the pupillary reflex if the optic tract is damaged on one side? Due to crossing at chiasma and bilateral innervation at the level of the nuclei, there is no difference in the pupillary reflex of both the eyes. However, if the optic nerve is damaged, this will lead to complete loss of pupillary efferent of that eye. Let's take that the optic nerve of the right eye is damaged. So if you shine a light into the right eye, the eye simply doesn't register it fully. It causes an absent or diminished direct reflex. If there is 100 units of light shined on the right pupil, it registers only 20 units or none. So we see a direct light reflex for the same eye as well as consensual reflex of the other eye for the 20 units only or none. Now we shine the same 100 units light to the left eye which is not damaged. Here we get a full-fledged 100 unit worth of pupillary constriction in both eyes, direct for left eye and consensual to right eye. This phenomenon is called relative afferent pupillary defect or RAPD in short or the Marcus Gunn pupil. Relative since it's comparative to the normal fellow eye. It's conceptually impossible to have a bilateral RAPD. Presence of RAPD implies a defect in the optic pathway anterior to the optic chiasm behind which the pupillary fibers are equally distributed to both sides. With advances in pupillometry, RAPD can be quantified in log units. While the most common pupillary defect covered, we stop for the day. We will continue the topic in our next upcoming episode. Hope you have enjoyed this episode and that's all for now. It's Team Off The Cast signing off. Do keep us updated on our email off the cast at the rate gmail.com or on our website www.offthecast.com with your comments, feedbacks and demands. Subscribe to us on all leading podcast players by searching for Off the Cast. These audios are in no way a replacement to your standard textbook. We strive to be factually correct but to err is human. Keep us posted if you disagree with anything that has been said in these recordings. We would be happy to make amendments with due credits. Thank you for being with us and giving us your valuable time. Goodbye and Godspeed.